As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. The virus situation in the U.S. is extremely bad right now, but I feel hopeful that this we're on the last wave, that thanks to the vaccine, that the light, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, so we're recording this in mid-December, and I think uh, the U.S. caseload keeps going up. It keeps going up in other places as well. So I think Europe, Germany just posted its highest caseload on record. Um, In Hong Kong, we have a fourth wave as well. I, I guess with winter setting in in many parts of the world, temperature obviously has an impact and we're seeing cases and also, sadly, deaths go up as well. Can I say something, though, you might... Here I have all right, I have something to say, which is I read all these stories about like Hong Kong is under a new wave or Hong Kong is under lockdown. <laughs> but I got to say, like, it does not seem anything like the same scale here. And when I look at, say, your Instagram photos, not that you're out out partying, but it does not seem as bad by any stretch, <laughs> even close. Like, it seems like your definition of a wave is not our definition of a wave. Yeah, our definition of a wave and this is our biggest ever wave. It's about 100 new cases per day. So really a fraction of what you're seeing in other countries. And our lockdowns are kind of weird and different because, for instance, um, you're allowed to eat in a restaurant, but they all close at 6 p.m. and it's only two people per table. So you can go out. And of course, you you can still this is what I quite like about Hong Kong. You can still get drinks <laughs> and just drink them outside after 6 p.m. And because the weather is quite mild here, it, it's fairly enjoyable to do that. But you're still supposed to do it in groups of uh, a maximum of two right. people. So there's literally nothing like our waves. And people are still doing uh, boat parties, right? Well, they crack down on those. So they okay. set up a hotline. <laughs> They set up a hotline so that people could report if they spotted someone holding a, they're called junk parties here. If if people decide to hold a junk party because they can't hold a party in a restaurant or a bar, they hire a boat, they go out to sea and everyone drinks and, and swims and sunbathes. Now there's a hotline so you can report that behavior. You're okay. not supposed to do it. All right. All right. Anyway, this is a big digression, but I just wanted to get this off my chest that when, you, when people are like, oh, <laughs> Hong Kong, is it? it's the worst wave yet. That it's like it's hey, look, it's all relative. I know, not yeah, 
exactly that's my point it's uh relative to us it's uh it's nothing anyway so that of course raises questions the if the end of the uh coronavirus crisis covid is in sight that of course raises questions about what the post-crisis world the post-covid world looks like Right. And I think this is something that we've touched on in a few episodes now, but one of the big questions is exactly what it means for the labor market, uh, whether we start to see maybe yeah. uh, wages pick up again, maybe we start to see workers demand uh, other benefits like work from home because they've all been so uh, used to it over the past 12 months or so. Big discussion point. Right. So uh, there have been some articles that I've seen from time to time talking about a past pandemic in which it, it was much worse than this one. And uh, there were these are there was like, uh, at the end of the Black Death in uh, the mid 1300s. There was actually a pretty big spike in wages because there was a labor shortage. This is not anywhere near on uh, as uh, sort of deadly it's extremely bad, but it's not Black Death uh, pandemic levels. So we're probably not going to get some massive labor shortage. But I, but, but even still, like, I'm sort of curious about this time because none of these things I've read are totally satisfying because on the one hand, yes, I understand there's a, there was a labor shortage. But on the other hand, you think there'd be this sort of like big, broad impairment to the economy. So it's not totally clear to me why wages went up. So even though I doubt it's that applicable to now, I am still very curious to understand what really happened when that uh, four-year pandemic came to an end. It's a really interesting question because the economic impact of the Black Death is sort of famous for leading to the end of feudalism. So supposedly there was such a big supply shock to labor. I mean, England lost half its population that wages started to go up and serfs who used to be completely at, at, at the will, working at the will of a lord, started to demand rights. And eventually you had the sort of end of the feudal system. I think a lot of your confusion probably comes from a misunderstanding of that particular <laughs> economy, or you're thinking about it like the, the modern economy. Yeah. I have to say, yes. I've been reading Pillars of the Earth recently, so I feel I am now an expert on medieval economies. Uh, I am very excited about this particular episode. I think it's going to be a fun one. And even if the analogy between the plague of the Middle Ages and the pandemic now is a little bit off, it, it's still a really interesting point in time. And I think it's worth talking about. Very big tonal shift in this interview from us joking about junk boat parties <laughs> to half the population of England dying in a plague. Nonetheless, <laughs> Here we are. It was long ago. It was long ago. So anyway, I'm very excited about our guest. Maybe I'll just listen to you and our guest talk. I'm very excited about our guest. We're going to be speaking with Patrick Wyman. He's a historian. He's also a podcaster, the host of the Tides of History podcast, and also an author. He has a book coming out about uh, credit and finance in the 1500s. So basically the perfect odd lots guest for this topic for this time. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. You know, uh, first time caller, long time listener. <laughs> awesome. Love to hear it. So where to get started? How would you characterize the pre-Black Death economy in Europe? Uh, Tracy talked about the feudal system, but I kind of have some vague idea of what that means. But how did the economy work pre-crisis? OK, so 
there are a couple of aspects to bear in mind when thinking about the pre-plague economy. And one is kind of the broad context where thinking about feudalism, whatever exactly that's supposed to mean, that's something specialists debate in this field. Not that there's anything specialists don't debate, uh, but basically a system in which uh, the a, a property owning class has tenant farmers working their land for them who are not free to come and go as they please and who owe the landlord labor services. So not just that they pay the landlord rent, um, they also owe the landlord uh, service on the land that the the landholder does not lease out, the called the domain land, uh, on an estate that the that these poor uh, that these poor serfs who again not free to go come and go as they please they are semi free at best um, that they have to work the lord's land they have to clear out ditches they have to plant crops they have to harvest crops they have to do stuff like that the idea the basic narrative of the black death is that it makes that system less tenable because uh, these formerly inserted formerly semi free people now do not have to do that labor service they can just run off they can go uh, they can go somewhere else they can go to a town they can get a job working in a trade something like that. Um, so that's the kind of the broad long-term shift that people talk about with the Black Death and its impact on the European economy. The Black Death comes at the end of what we call the commercial revolution. So the couple of century period leading up to the Black Death sees an enormous expansion of the European economy. It's the period in which most of the tools that we're familiar with that kind of define a, 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 an advanced economy, things like widespread access to credit, um, high levels of international trade, resident merchants who are capable of doing business over long distances, the kind, that's the time when these things all across Europe are coming into play. Now, the reason for that is fundamentally demographic, that this is a period when the climate is really good, um, crop yields are good. So there's a population boom. There's new land cleared, new land comes under cultivation. These lords are able to extract lots of labor dues and rents from their tenants because there are a lot of tenants and there's not that much land. So if you control the land, you can, you can get a lot from it. Now, by the time the Black Death rolls around in the middle of the 14th century, that expansion is over. The economy has peaked. It's already in a little bit of decline uh, by the time the plague hits. So the largest firms in Europe prior to the Black Death, what are called the, the super companies, these uh, the, the, which are mostly based in Florence um, and are involved in a whole host of activities all over the continent, the super companies have already gone bankrupt by the time the Black Death hits. So the economy is already in trouble when the Black Death hits, and then you get this enormous wave of mass death. Uh, before we get into that, could you maybe, so you've laid out the, um, I, I guess, the labor side of the economy very, very well. Can you talk a little bit about like the demand side? What exactly were people producing at that time? And what was driving the economy? Because I think this is going to feed in later to answering Joe's question. Yeah, so it's almost entirely an agricultural economy. You, We can write really interesting things about the cloth trade, about the long-distance trade and luxury goods, and it's not that those things don't matter. They do matter for, for reasons that I think we'll probably end up coming back to over the course of, to, over the course of our chat today, but it's primarily an agricultural economy. Depending on the region you're talking about, there is no region in Western Europe specifically that has more than 20, at most 30% of the population living in towns. Everybody lives in the countryside. Almost everybody who lives in the countryside is involved in agricultural labor in some way, shape, or form. So there is way, it's not that the economy is 
simple. There is wage labor. There are local, regional, and international trade routes. Um, there is a trade in agricultural produce that goes over long distances that uses sometimes quite sophisticated uh, commercial tools to do that, application of credit, accounting techniques, things like that. But it is primarily an agricultural economy. And so the that's why the population increase and bringing new land under cultivation matters so much. The more people you have, the more agricultural produce you're, you're putting out there, the more the economy grows, the more surplus there is for lords to extract, which they can then use for things like long distance trade and luxury goods. Mm. I think this is like a key element here. So the consumption of all this uh, agricultural production was exported. In, so the lords would export it uh, elsewhere in exchange for something not in agriculture. Well, either the, or or they would extract cash rents from their tenants, and they would use the and and they would use the combination of that and yeah, sure, maybe if you're so you're the lord of a manor near London, um, you okay. whatever surplus you grow from your land, maybe you sell that to maybe you sell that to merchants who are who are doing business in London, um, and then you have the benefit of like all of your tenants are also paying you uh, cash rent for their for for being on their land so you've just got it's a good time to be a lord if you're a lord before the plague in like the 1330s 1340s great time to own land great time to be extracting rents just out of curiosity how big uh, what kind of city was london at the time so london is the biggest city in england but it's not a big city by global standards in fact there are no real big cities by global standards in the in the 14th century in europe um europe is kind of a backwater it's not as much of a backwater as it becomes in like the mid 15th century. But, you know, London has hmm. 50,000 people, 60,000 people at most. Paris has 60,000 to 100,000. Um, and those are the the big cities. The biggest cities are places like um, still Const not so much Constantinople anymore after the after the Crusader conquest at the beginning of the 13th century. Uh, but places like Baghdad, again, probably declined a little bit after the Mongol conquest, but cities in Central Asia, South Asia, definitely in uh, definitely in China uh, were dramatically larger. Also, some places in the New okay. World were dramatically larger than European cities at this point. Huh. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So in 1348, um, I think that's when the plague actually arrived in England. At the time, it has something like 5 million people in total, 50,000 in London, as you just mentioned. By the end of it, I think the population is something like half of that. Can you describe exactly what the impact was of the Black Death on, uh, I, I guess let's focus on, on England at the moment, but I, I'm curious about the rest of Europe as well. Okay, so it's the, the death toll is regionally variable. 
but high. Basically, so trying to do medieval demography is hard because you're there's never just like a list of people who live in a particular place and you can say, ah, <laughs> this person died at this particular time, this many people died in the plague. So you're left to reconstruct demography on the basis of tax records, um, records of land holding, um, sometimes legal records. Basically, they're not giving you the stuff you want to tell, like how many people live in a particular place at point A and how many places live at point B, what's the likely death rate? The better the data is for the period around the Black Death, I think it's notable that the higher the death rate looks. So when the data is not especially like the, the more direct the relationship between the demographic data and the actual population, the, the fewer kind of proxies that you have to work through to figure out how many people live in a place, the higher the death toll looks. So where our data is best in places like Savoy, um, northern Italy, some parts of England, the death toll looks like it's 40 to 60 percent. In places where the data isn't as good, it looks like it's more like 30 to 40 percent. But how much of that is an artifact of the sources that we're working with and how much of it is actually reflective of regional variation and death toll is hard to say. But yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say 40 to 50 percent is a good kind is a good kind of low end number and potentially much higher. But the key point about death tolls when we're talking about the Black Death, is it's not just that people die, it's not that the plague comes once, it's that it keeps coming back. So the fundamental shift that the plague puts into place and which continues throughout the rest of the 15th century is a shift to what a demographer would call a high mortality regime. So you still have high fertility, people are still having lots of babies, but the death rate is just high enough that it prevents the population from rebounding. So it's not just that you have a one-time demographic shock, it's that People die, they keep dying, and they keep dying. So you don't get, a, like, even in a pre-modern society where uh, population growth rates are, are really pretty low compared to what we're used to in the 20th century, 21st century, um, you, you would still expect if you have a, a sudden abundance of land and resources in the aftermath of a mass mortality event for populations to rebound fairly quickly. That doesn't happen after the plague. And that's the key demographic fact of it. That's what shapes the labor markets, not just in the middle of the 14th century, but into the 15th century and beyond. See, now I've been reading Forever Amber as well. So I feel I am also an expert on plague in the 17th century in England. But yeah, you're, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Like the plague keeps coming back. And just on that point, what, one of the things that you learn, I guess, from um, historical fiction is the plague, you know, it doesn't just cause people to die it, in a sort of similar way to what we're seeing now with pandemic lockdowns. It causes big chunks of the economy, or it seemed like it to kind of come to a standstill because no one wants to go out of their house. They're not exactly sure how the plague is actually spread. They have family members who are dying back at home who might be, you know, locked in a room somewhere. What, what does it actually look like when plague hits a town in the Middle Ages? What tends to happen? So you do get quarantines. Um, so Milan quite famously av mostly avoided the first terrible wave of the plague, the one that caused so much death and destruction across northern Italy, because they basically bricked up any plague cases in their houses. They just uh, they they're like, OK, tough luck. You're stuck in there. You're going to die. So Milan emerged from the plague um, in pretty good shape as a as a city with its population still almost entirely intact in that first wave. Now, plague does show up in Milan afterwards, so it's not like they escaped forever. But there are things I mean, medieval people did not have germ theory, so they did not understand what was causing um, this stuff. But they did understand that there was a correlation between personal contact and the spread of disease. So they did try and avoid contact with other people. They did try and stay isolated. Um, they did. They did have some sense that that's 
the, the disease was being spread in that fashion. It's not entirely clear. Even today, we still know less about how the Black Death was transmitted than we wish we did. There are still debates about this. Scholars still do not agree on every aspect of it, about whether it's bubonic or pneumonic plague, what role various vectors of transmission played, whether it's fleas on rats, whether it's human fleas, whether it's primarily airborne. Um, there are lots of debates about this. But anyway, um, yeah, so so lots of economic activity does grind to a halt. And there are, you, you read primary source accounts where it's like crops are left to wither and die in fields. Um, cattle are running around starving because nobody's feeding them. People are people are dying in their houses. The, I mean, it's funny you mentioned the, the junk parties. I couldn't help but think of uh, Boccaccio's Decameron. So one of the great literary <laughs> works of the Middle Ages is this dude Boccaccio. And the Decameron is this series of stories that are all uh, like the kind of the central premise of it is that they're all hanging out at a country house outside Florence while the plague is happening and they're just amusing each other by telling each other stories. So they too had junk parties just, you know, at a nice <laughs> villa and a nice Tuscan villa instead of out on a junk. I, I guess I'm actually still curious just about the functioning of society. You mentioned like, okay, crops were left to rot. There were stories of animals that were starving. From the perspective of these feudal lords, how did their lives change? How did they try to get by and operate? I mean, uh, what did they do? So lords, the, as best we can tell, the higher up you were in society, the better off you were when it came to actually dying of the plague. But in the- Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, some things never change. Um, after the plague, landlords suddenly see their leverage over their tenants dramatically decreased. So right. it's both a supply shock to the labor market, but it's also a it's also a demand shock. The thing is, the demand shock is nowhere near as severe as the supply shock is because I mentioned that population growth a little while ago. I mentioned that there are all of these kind of landless tenant farmers. Now, all of a sudden, lots of people have died. There aren't nearly as many people who need to eat agricultural produce as there were a couple of years beforehand. Um, so suddenly right. there's there's a lot more land available. You don't need uh, the, the price of land drops dramatically. The price of rents dro falls dramatically and the price of labor goes way, way up. So if you're a landlord who wants to get your peasants out there to come uh, to come clear out a ditch for you, they're not going to do it. They're going to go and they're they're going to find their own little patch of land. They're going to go to a town to work for wages. There, there are all sorts of things. This is when we see some of the first laws trying to restrict um, the price of labor. We see these in England in the 1350s um, that they were just couldn't enforce them because, you know, the what the labor markets were going to do is what the labor markets were going to do when you have a shortage of labor and still exceptionally high amounts of demand because people still have to eat. You still need to pay for agricultural labor to, to harvest crops, to care for livestock, to do all that stuff. It's just that they're not going to do it for what they would have done it when there were twice as many people. Right. So I saw the text of at least one of these laws, and it was something like you can't pay a laborer or a farmer more than you would have done like last year or in like an average over the past five years or something like that. So it was pretty like pretty explicit what they were trying to do here. I just wanted to press you on, on one point. So we talked about how the economy is mostly agricultural at this point. There's all this land available. How did that feed into productivity at the time? Because I imagine when you had a higher population earlier on, everyone was trying to get as much as they could out of the land. They were probably farming uh, land that wasn't entirely ideal. And now you can kind of pick and choose, right? And maybe productivity goes up 
Yeah. So it, it's that's a really interesting and, and a really good point. And so what happens is the marginal land that had been like like a drained swamp or kind of rocky hillsides. All of that land had been in use to grow cereal crops because that's when it give you that's what's going to give you the most calories per acre. Um, if you've got to feed a lot of people, what you got to do is you got to grow wheat. So diets before the plague were exceptionally dependent on on wheat. Um, as you can expect, like that's not a great diet for people to have. And I think there's probably some correlation between death rates in the plague and the fact that they were eating a diet that was almost certainly not optimal for for strengthening your immune system. There, so there's that aspect to it. As the plague roars through, as people die, you can let this marginal land go out of wheat cultivation. You don't need to, suddenly you don't need to use this rocky land or this marshy land for that. You can use it for other things. And what they end up using a lot of this formerly marginal land for is stock raising, is for pasture land, for sheep, for cattle. Um, diets get better after the plague because you have more land that you can be grazing the that you can be grazing these animals on you can keep the meat on the hoof um you can you see in a kind of uh, definitely in england you see an expansion of the uh of the wool economy even beyond what it had been before english wool had already been in high demand that was one of the main sources of of uh financing for the english government uh prior to the plague was was the uh, the wool staple uh but after the plague, uh, it becomes even more important. You get, uh, in some regions of Europe, you get production uh, moving out into the countryside because suddenly not every single peasant has to be working in the fields. You can have more specialization of labor. Uh, you can have more craft production. You can see this. There are some regional studies that point to the specific way in which economies change after the plague. And basically, it's almost always um, in the direction of Peasants have peasants can do more things. Um, they don't just have to grow wheat. They can raise stock. They can do crafts. Uh, they basically they have a lot more economic opportunity, and they're much more likely to be able to own their own land, or at the very least, lease their own land instead of working as um, instead of working as low paid tenant laborers. Let me let me ask you. So you know, like when when this virus eventually is gone, like I have in my head, like. I'm going to fly to El Paso and rent a car and drive to Vegas and go to a casino for a couple of days. And, you know, I have this whole fantasy. I'll probably never get around to it because I have kids. So it's probably never going to happen. But like I like, you know, like I imagine it will. Did you know the the Black Death was like far longer, far worse uh, in terms of just the sheer like, you know, the, the seeing half the people, you know, die. Did people have a party at the end? Was there like signs of like sort of like jubilation and new behaviors and people doing fun things because this awful period had come to an end? This is the pent-up demand theory versus yeah. the are people going to be saving forever because they're worried there's going to yeah, be another right. pandemic. Yeah, no, there was there was a huge kind of burst of consumption after the Black Death, an enormous burst of it. So there's a lot of anxiety, uh, especially among churchmen in the second half of the 14th century, about all the conspicuous consumption that people are doing. So part of it is pent up demand, but part of it is also lots of people died. There are lots of inheritances. So there's lots of money coming to people who may not have had as much money to spend before, who are suddenly like, if I could die in the plague next week, you're you're damn right. I'm gonna I'm gonna pay for this this amazing piece of art. Like there's good reason to think that kind of the flourishing of early Renaissance art, um, the demand for that came from penta came from people who were like, okay, we have all these resources, let's spend them on something. The way to do that is now we're gonna compete with our fellow uh, you know rich Florentine merchants by paying for art. 
Um, so there's a kind of a material context to, to that specific aspect that I would imagine people are probably fairly familiar with that comes out of the that comes out of the plague. And one of the interesting things about this to 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 get into the to get into the the monetary aspects of it is around the time of the plague, you don't have that much actual money in circulation. And you're getting to the point where there's almost a shortage of, of coins for people to use to carry out transactions. The plague kind of buys Europe about 65 or 70 years before that becomes a problem again, because suddenly the amount of coin in circulation per person is dramatically higher. <laughs> um, if half the population's dead, you don't have nearly as much of a shortage. The bullion famine comes again, and that's another really important thing for kind of shaping the post-plague the post -plague world and the early modern economy afterward. Um, but at least at that point, suddenly the, the European economy is no longer cash poor. It's actually almost flush with cash. Actually, that reminds me, we haven't really spoken about this yet, but what did inflation look like in the aftermath of the plague? That's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a really good answer to it off the top of my head. Um, all of those things that I mentioned are factors that play into it. There's still, there is not mu as much of a trade deficit between Europe and the East as there had been 50 or 60 years before. There's not as much bullion leaving. There is just the fact that there isn't nearly as much of a shortage of coin kind of reduced the need for non-coin tools to pay for money, to, to pay for things. There was just, but in the long term, you end up with the development of a lot of tools, um, like book transfers, things like that, that, that allow you to function without as much money the the effect that that has on the money supply it's it's a question i'm not super familiar with wait well, real quickly what's book transfers okay so book transfers are when you both when when you and the person you're doing business with both have an account with the same uh with the same banker uh. or even um what they didn't what they didn't in, in like bruges which was kind of the center of trade in northern europe at this point um it was uh hostel owners who kept these who who basically kept accounts and uh everybody had credit with the with the hosteler what you could do um in venice you go to the rialto um you and the you and the person that you're in a business venture with uh both have accounts with the same banker you just move the money from his account to your account or from your account to his account. So no actual cash has changed hands, but you've got a transaction. It's one of the things that, um, it's one of the innovations that allows you to speed up the velocity of money in later medieval Europe without any sort of increase in the actual amount of coin in circulation, or even a decrease in the amount of coin in circulation. So we started out this conversation talking about how uh, pandemic experiences tend to be uh, quite relative and, you know, one place might have a very different experience to the other. I'm curious when it comes to medieval Europe, my understanding is after the Black Death, England sort of set set on this this road of um, eliminating serfdom and moving towards something that looks a, a little bit more like a modern capitalist system where laborers were sort of free to go from one thing to the other. That didn't necessarily happen in other parts of Europe, even though they went through the Black Death as well. Why do we think that happened? Why did England seem to have this economic trend uh, accelerated in a way that maybe other places didn't? So this is the th this is a thing that economic historians have argued about a very great deal. Um, if anybody knows uh, pseudo Erasmus on Twitter, he's the king of talking about uh, the late medieval <laughs> economy and the, and the rise of capitalism. There, it's a whole thing. Um, it's a it's a whole series of debates. So what what I would say is that Prior to the 16th century, it's very hard to talk about capitalism 
as a system anywhere other than maybe the biggest cities of the Low Countries, the merchants of London, Northern Italy, you know, merchants in Barcelona, places like that, um, Southern Germany too, uh, the Hansa. So basically, you you have there are capitalists. There are definitely people who are trying to use their money in productive ways. But the some of the baseline concepts that we associate with capitalism, base that everything is uh, that that everything is a a it has a monetary value. Um, that land is a commodity that can be that has a monetary value and can be transferred from person to person. They weren't necessarily working with these same kind of baseline assumptions. So I'm a little uncomfortable with applying that term to it. But with that said. With that caveat out of the way, I got to do the I got to do the specialist historian thing real quick. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, with that caveat out of the way, I think that England was especially well suited to take advantage of more intense interregional distribution in the later Middle Ages. So you different regions after the Middle Ages, because you have or, or after the Black Death, because you have this enormous drop in population, and again, not everybody needs to be. Uh, not everybody needs to be farming wheat anymore. You can you can have more specialization. England is really well suited to expand its wool production. Um, the cloth market, is, the cloth markets in the Low Countries, where where they're mostly are turning um, wool into finished cloth for export. Some wool also goes to uh, some, some wool also goes directly to Italy to be woven there and then exported. England is really well suited to take advantage of this. And because everything is in close proximity to London, which is a financial center, it's right on the North Sea. London is very tightly connected to the commercial centers of the Low Countries, which are some of the most commercially advanced places in Europe. There's a geographic aspect to it where London, where England is just really well suited to take advantage of these things. And it has a legal system that protects property rights, which is helpful. There's some demographic things going on, one of them being that uh, th women in, in England tend to have much later ages at first marriage. So the, so there are more uh, female wage earners in the economy, um, which, is a, which is a sign of its dynamism. Even before marrying and starting a household, women in England, the Low Countries, to some extent Northern Germany, are, uh, are much more likely to be participants in a wage-based market economy than they were elsewhere in Europe. So that, uh, that aspect plays into it. There's a lot of things happening. It's, hard, it's really hard to separate out any individual thing. But if I had to point to one, I think it would be some combination of lots of wage earners, a, a monetized economy, much more fully than in other places in Europe. People were thinking in England in terms of the monetary value uh, of uh, the abstract monetary value of things. Um, they weren't necessarily using the most advanced accounting practices, but kind of the mental tools were there, if that makes any sort of sense. The, so even even a peasant is thinking in terms of how much is how much is my labor worth? How much is if even if I'm trading one commodity for another, we're you we're doing so with a monetary standard in mind. So we're converting this thing's value to a to a monetary standard as we make this barter transaction. I think that's really important is just like even at the village level, there was lots of credit available in England. Um, that's true all over Europe, that there are kind of informal systems for providing credit to people. But that was especially true in England. We have lots of really good evidence for it that you could take out a loan on your land and you could use that money for productive investment. That's a thing that existed in, in England, not necessarily as common elsewhere. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm loath to point to a single factor, but I think all of those things put together um, mattered a great deal. The distribution networks get much more intense in the later Middle Ages with more regional specialization. You have, even if the actual volumes of goods moving are not as, 
are not as high as they were prior to the plague. I think more people were participating in those kinds of um, regional and long distance um, exchange networks. I think that matters a lot. I think more people were were more closely tied into uh, kind of broader broader systems of exchange. Um, I'm not sure if that's a good answer, but it I think it's a little bit of everything. I think all of those things matter to some degree. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you describe all of these sort of things that uh, came about in the post-plague world, post-plague economy, many of them pretty good, uh, greater sophistication of money, uh, more productivity, so forth. I don't draw like too many like comparisons or too hard lines between then and now. But one of the things that I feel about COVID and this crisis is that a lot of pre-crisis trends just got like supercharged and accelerated. Like we're compressing five or 10 years of history into six months. And you see it with the rise of tele teleworking and telehealth and e-commerce and other just all things. And asset values flying to the moon and interest rates plunging and interstate tax competition that was already a thing pre-crisis, really accelerating with all the people leaving California, supposedly to go to Texas. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, to what extent can we say that if with the Black Death, that that had an accelerant effect of things that would have happened eventually, or maybe things that were trending in that direction? And did that also have the effect of I guess, uh, rapidly pulling forth, pulling forward history that was inevitably on its path to unfolding at a slower pace. Yeah, I, w I would not say inevitably, but those trend lines were definitely in place. So I mentioned that like the Florentine super companies had already gone bust by the time the by the time the Black Death happened, the economy was already trending downward. The, the peak of population had probably already been passed already. Um, the the landlord's ability to demand things from their tenants was already lower than it had been. There were more peasants' rebellions already, even before the Black Death, than there had been before. So there's there's more unrest. Um, that whether that system could have survived in the same way without the Black Death, I still think I still think peasants would have been better off in the long run, even without that particular shock. And I mean, I think you can see 
this, some of the same dynamics operating now. It's that like when something like this happens, there's no going back. You can, people are not going to forget the thing that happened. <laughs> like workers who have spent the last, um, you know, nine months working from home and like doing it are not going to forget that they like working from home. Um, people who have been able, able to demand a small rise in wages are not going to forget that their, that their wages went up. People who like me moved states and, uh, and are not going to forget that they liked moving states. Um, things like that. There's, uh, you know, the, and the Black Death is is much the same that like if you come out of that as a laborer, knowing that like you can tell your landlord that you're not going to work for him and what's he going to do, sick the bailiff on you? Well, you can punch the bailiff uh, if he comes to get you like you don't forget that that's happened. And I think that's the big thing is that like once this once this stuff happens, it's then part of your collective experience. It's part of your expectations of how economic life is supposed to work. Uh, in a way that it hadn't been before. And so that's the parallel. Even if the inflection point itself is much different, is that there is no going back. You can't force people back into the box they were in beforehand, um, back into their ways of thinking beforehand. I think you're going to see that, especially with state financing, fiscal stimulus. Uh, there's just, there's no going back on those fronts. Like we, something, a, a, a switch has flipped. Well, any other like sort of like last key thoughts, Patrick, of like um, points that you think people should really understand? I think there's no underestimating how important the Black Death is to to the later development of the European economy. Like I think the labor shortage is the the labor shortage that comes out of that, the kind of additional freedom that laborers have, it spurs things like an um increased emphasis on labor-saving technologies. So I don't think the, there's a world in which you have the printing press without the Black Death because that's wow. a labor-saving technology, not just in the sense that um that you have the the attempt to save labor on that, but also the financial mechanisms that make it possible for you to fund the development of a printing press. Like it's a super capital intensive process. It involves multiple layers of transactions, a whole lot of kind of delayed return expectations. Um, I don't think that that whole process, not even the desire to have the thing in the first place, would have existed without the Black Death, without this increase in kind of ways of thinking creatively about investment, um, ways of moving money around, even in the absence of coinage. Um, I don't think that any of that stuff would have happened without it. So it's really the foundational event that gives you the wow. early modern economy. So even though in the in the short term, there is a there is a a net drawdown in the European economy. The European economy is smaller after the Black Death. Um, Europe is more of a backwater in the 15th century than it is in the 14th. It's like it's the end of Eurasia. Like nobody wants to go there. There's no, they don't export anything that's worth anything. That's why it's you know European ships um, traveling elsewhere at the end of the 15th century and not vice versa. It's because they're the ones who need to go find things of value. But what happens during this really rough period, and also something we didn't talk about, the climate got worse, it got colder and more variable, crop yields went down. Um, there's just incessant war in the later in the later 14th and into the 15th centuries, um, the Hundred Years' War just being the best known of them. Like, it's not a good time. But the tools that developed during this period, especially fiscal tools, um, the, the things that states learn to do, in large part in order to make war for longer and more efficiently. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in this period that's almost a, like a product of scarcity um, and having to think outside the previous economic box that gives you a lot of the, the developments that we see around 1500 and afterward, the things when we see, you know, quote unquote, the rise of Europe, the emergence of a, of a capitalist system, um, and eventually gives us the Industrial Revolution. So the Black Death was good. 
I think if you made it through the Black Death and you could deal with the emotional fallout of half the people you know dying, you were you were likely to be better off in material terms than you were beforehand. Okay, it's it's cool. It's almost seven hundred years has passed since then, so we can we can make we can make cool. It's not There's too soon. Enough time has passed. It's not too. It's not too soon. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on. This is a is a, a real treat, and um, just really appreciate you joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. I'm a big fan of your show. I've learned so much about finance and, and the economy from listening to you guys. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we'll have to have you back after your book's come out. Patrick, yeah, thank you great. so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was great. I I really did have a lot of like I was confused prior to this. Like I genuinely didn't understand exactly, but the explanation of the sort of uh, supply side changes, the labor shortage, the productivity shock, the new demand from uh, previous peasants who weren't having all of their all of their consumption, I guess, exploited or surplus exploited. I finally feel like. He, he did such a great job putting it all together. Yeah, he really did. And I thought the point he made towards the end about how a lot of this was, well, you know, some of these trends were sort of on the way, but the idea that the experience, the unusual experience of the Black Death is sort of stuck in people's minds and made them realize what was possible. This idea of, well, you can ask for more money or you can leave your Lord and go work somewhere else uh, if you go far enough. Like, that definitely has resonance in the uh, COVID period, I think. You know what it made? Yes, absolutely. And I was just going to say, it made me think, like, we might be underestimating the change that's going to come out of COVID. I mean, like, you know, I think in many respects, our lives will go back to something resembling uh, normal. But it it also seems like, you know, this has just been, it's obviously this period has not been as deadly as the Black Death was by any stretch. But it's been a, a global disruption to virtually everyone's lives on the entire planet in some way or another for what's turning into a pretty extended period of time. It seems plausible that we aren't even like really can't even really grasp the sort of ripple effects that an episode like this will have. Mm. I think that's fair. Although I do think you see some inklings of it. Your yeah. life hasn't you changed. Do- Your life hasn't changed. I know because you guys don't really have it, but but for much of the world, from outside. Now of- wait a second. <laughs> okay, I'm going to dispute that, but I'm going to dispute it offline, away from okay. all Vance <laughs> listeners. But I, I would say you are seeing. We've discussed this, right? You are seeing inklings of some changes, especially in the U.S., where there isn't necessarily as strong a social safety net as in places like Europe. You don't have free medical care, things like that. I think 2020 is the year where quite a few people are starting to call for additional government involvement in in those sorts of things, in providing extra uh, unemployment benefits, fiscal stimulus uh, some sort of national health care, whatever. Like you are seeing that in the U.S. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel like life is going to change. At least that's my feeling right now. December 17th, 
6.53 p.m. Eastern time after talking to Patrick Wyman. The life is good. Okay. All right. We'll come back to the question. And we'll have Patrick on again uh, when he yeah. uh, unveils yeah, his Yeah, he's new great. Book. Yeah. Okay. Shall we leave it there? Yep. Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman and check out his podcast, The Tides of History. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.